The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we talk to the Art Newspaper's Jory Finkel about her book looking at works in museums that have inspired or influenced artists. That's coming up a bit later. But first this week it's summer, so I'm outdoors, and specifically in Yorkshire Sculpture Park. This week sees the opening of Yorkshire Sculpture International, a festival of sculpture across the northern British counties' museums and galleries, among them the Hepworth in Wakefield and the Henry Moore Institute in Leeds. Among the artists involved are Neri Bagramian and Jimmy Durham at the Hepworth, Rashid Johnson at the Henry Moore Institute, Rachel Harrison at Leeds Art Gallery and Huma Bapa in Wakefield City Centre. But at the Sculpture Park is a major show of the work of David Smith, the definitive sculptor of post-war American abstraction. I came here to the Sculpture Park to talk first to Claire Lilly, the director, and then to David Smith's daughters, Candida and Rebecca. Claire, before we get on to talking about the show itself, can you give us a bit of an introduction for our uh, non-British listeners as to Yorkshire Sculpture Park and its sort of, I guess, its place in this sort of ecosystem of this very sculptural county? It's an amazing place. I mean, I would say that, but it's honestly, it's fantastic. It's 500 acres of landscape designed about 250 years ago. So we have incredible trees, we have a valley, we have lakes, woodland, parkland, gardens. And in and amongst all of that, um, at any one time, probably between 80 and 90 sculptures sited outdoors five galleries, two restaurants, the whole caboodle. So it's a really, really beautiful place to come and enjoy sculpture and landscape together. And there's this big Yorkshire Sculpture International the festival across Yorkshire, essentially. How long has this been going? And, and uh, what does it say about this area and you know, this sort of rich, rich history? Well, we've been kind of convened. Uh, that's Yorkshire Sculpture Park, the Hepworth Wakefield Leeds Art Gallery and the Henry Moore Institute for, ooh, golly, six years maybe, uh, something called the Yorkshire Sculpture Triangle. Um, and we dreamed up the international, really. I suppose it was a kind of natural evolution because all of these organisations are doing really fantastic sculpture projects, working with sculpture in a very particular way. And I think it's really important to mention Barbara Hepworth and Henry Moore because, in a way, they're the crucible of modernism in Britain. They were both born within a few miles of where we're standing And their legacy really is these institutions and this very distinct primacy of sculpture in this environment. And talking of modernism, (laughs) here we are surrounded by a a very great modernist sculptor, David Smith. Um, One one of the things that's interesting about Smith is his his reputation both in the States and here. Can you give us something of the flavour of where he sits in the sort of pantheon, both uh, in, in his own territory, if you like, in US, but also, also here. Well, David Smith, I think it's true to say, is a colossus of 20th century sculpture, not just in the material, but really the impact that he had on sculpture. I think probably every bit as vital as Picasso's sculpture Um, He started his practice in the 1930s and actually he only worked as a sculptor for 33 years because he died very unexpectedly in 1965. 
but he was the first American to weld sculpture, which sounds, you know... I don't know. It doesn't sound like that big a deal, but it really was a big deal. It was somebody bringing the factory, the the, the workshop, um, workshop practices into the studio, and indeed his studios were really workshops. His influence was really profound, and it was global. It started in America, but it very quickly spread. And so artists like uh, Anthony Caro, the British artist, would really very clearly make um, a connection between their work and David Smith's. So in as many ways, he really changed the face of sculpture to make abstract sculpture. The, the, the show's really powerfully conveys this journey through his work because he begins here you see in this very first room this journey from really looking at Picasso and Gonzalez and and taking on board their lessons but then growing from that really extraordinarily can you tell us something about that journey I'm just so glad you say that because it's, you know, this is a very focused exhibition. This is a very beautiful gallery and it's a fairly big gallery but can in no way do justice to a man who in the last five years of his life produced 200 sculptures. So, you know, we're, so we had to take a very kind of incisive view of David Smith and it's called 1932 to 1965. This is when he began to make sculpture and this sadly is when he ended making sculpture. So it's a really focused look at that development. And it takes us from a kind of um, development of painting through into these really vast monumental sculptures, doesn't it? And, and, but at the same time, it, painting never leaves him and drawing equally never leaves him in terms of the actual making of the sculptures. Well, he trained as a painter at the Art Students League in the mid-20s in New York. He never trained as a sculptor but he had worked as a teenager welding in a, in a Studebaker car factory. During the war, he was welding destroyer tanks. Um, and so he was using the stuff around him, I mean, literally the cogs, the tools, the bits of steel that he could find, which sadly, of course, were really available because this was the Depression. This, these were the Depression years and which massively hit rural mid-America. And so he was able to pull these things together. But then gradually you see his voice developing into one that goes from being extraordinarily lyrical and poetic, uh, some works which are quite obsessively claustrophobic, opening out in the very happy years in the 1950s when... He gets a Guggenheim Fellowship and for the very first time is able to make sculpture without having to go and earn his living as a welder in somewhere or other. So that gives him this incredible liberation and you can see that in Gallery 3, these beautiful, light, airy, uh, positive sculptures. And then another shift in his practice in the 60s where he just starts to really work with scale, really work with very large pieces of steel and colour. And, you know, often people think about colour and sculpture as being somehow divorced. Actually, they never have been. Well, that's not true. From around the 18th, 19th and into the 20th centuries, they were divorced. But in ancient Greece, you see this. In ancient Egypt, you see this. In almost every culture on earth, you see sculpture and painting come together. And that's what David Smith does. He harnesses this incredible history, this lineage that he's absolutely aware that he's part of. 
but then creates this whole new language, a whole new... It's like a whole new vocabulary, and that's what you see playing out in these galleries. One of the things that really struck me seeing the show was that, of course, we think of him as an abstract sculptor, but there are some really extraordinary works called Medals for Dishonour in this first room, and those are vigorously figurative and extraordinarily shocking in some ways, aren't they? They are. They were really his response to fascism in Europe, uh, to what he saw as profiteering from war. He was an avid pacifist. And he travelled in Europe in the mid-30s and saw the devastation that the First World War had wrought in Europe in those times and saw the growth of Nazism, of course, the Spanish Civil War, and the, the medals for dishonour are really a response to that. And also, he saw Sumerian seals in the British Museum, see these beautiful incised uh, pieces of stone, which were used as seals, and 19th-century German medals which were a really great influence on him, as was Hieronymus Bosch and Bruegel. So you see all of this coming together into images which are disturbing. And frankly, I suppose if you are making something in response to those issues in 1939, it would be pretty strange if they, if they weren't disturbing. There's, there's one particular medal for dishonour that I found deeply disturbing and that's the one where he's working very close to home and looking at the Ku Klux Klan and lynchings and again it's it's an extraordinary visceral scene that he's depicted there. Yeah absolutely and he's also there depicting the German American German Bund you know this pro-Nazi group that was in the United States at that time but, you know, we, we need to look at these things and consider ourselves, look, reflect our, on our own lives, reflect on our own civilizations, the way that we, the way that we conduct ourselves in the world and, um, yes, think very hard about where we are. The sort of leap in scale that you talked about earlier had something to do with this trip that he made to Italy and having this access to this extraordinary workshop that he had over there. Can you say something about that? Yeah, I I kind of think David Smith must have been a child in a sweet shop at this point. You know, he's been given this, um, sadly, abandoned factory. It's an Italsider factory near Genoa. And it's full of tools and full of bits of steel, it's full of machinery, and it's got six guys who used to work in the factory there, ready and waiting to work with this, you know, big American, important American artist in 1962. And he said that when he got there, it was very difficult, he didn't speak Italian, um, and he spent the first few hours there just cleaning up, sweeping the floors, cleaning, and in that way got these guys respect, and they learned a language. And, you know, it was, it's the language of the artisan, it's the language of the mechanic, of the welder, people who know how to fix things, people who know what to do with their hands. And it's very difficult to make ambitious sculpture without assistance. Almost nobody in history has ever been able to do that. Sculpture is an enormously difficult thing to do on your own. With these men, he's able to create something that previously hasn't really been accessible to him. This is 1962. He then took tons of steel back to Bolton Landing in upstate New York with him and then continued to make these works, which there he calls Voltry Boltons. 
And I suppose, you know, the very latest work that we have here in the exhibition gives you some sense of where David Smith may have gone had, um, had his life not been curtailed in the way that it was. He was 59 when he died, and you really feel this was a man who was absolutely at the height of his powers, who had the most extraordinary energy, and uh, who knows what might have been. I'm struck standing here that I mean it is an absolutely beautiful day it must be said and we are we have around us I mean we're standing inside but we we have vast glass windows in front of us and outside these windows on a lawn are several of Smith's sculptures from different periods it this is what Yorkshire Sculpture Park can do in a way that other places can't right you know show things outside in the landscape and which is so important in terms of Smith's work yeah it's I mean for us it's enormously important and you know to be able to bring these works within the gallery and have them outside the gallery as you see say as you say seen through these large windows um, is unique and really really important to us because you know we care hugely about sculpture but we also really care about landscape we care about how people move through landscape the journeys that they make their experience of sculpture right now it's beautifully sunny but you know three hours ago it was raining um and that's the great thing about yorkshire there's always going to be shifts and change in this in this um in the weather here and so we're looking right now at a piece called q by 19 which is on loan from tate and we're really, really very happy that Tate has allowed us to show it outdoors. And it's singing, you know, it's reflecting light. It's, uh, it's kind of absorbing and reflecting the blue of the sky. But even this morning when the sky was really dull, this piece had an incredible um, a kind of a hum about it because it's able to pull in the environment around it and then bounce it back out. Well, Claire, thank you so much for talking to us. That's my pleasure. Thank you. Rebecca and Candida, we are standing in view of your father's sculptures in the in the outside world at here at here at Yorkshire Sculpture Park. This was a matter of tremendous importance to him, wasn't it? Can you tell me about his thoughts about having his work outside, Candida? He had his work outside largely because there was no place to store it inside, and the more he put outside, the more he wanted outside. He thought they were too big to to travel, some of them, and that they would stay in Bolton Landing forever. But that turned out not to be the case at all. So, I mean, can you create a picture for us of what it was like in the fields around Bolton Landing, Rebecca? Well, for for us as children, it seemed very animated. Um, There were all these uh, objects sort of um, located down the slopes of the fields, and we would play there, and there were long, long grasses and flowers and they I always liked the ones I felt were kind of like animals the best Um, I liked the painted ones a lot I liked seeing uh, one summer they would be not painted then the next summer they were colors Um, and pieces also came and and went and changed positions so would would he would he sort of take you to see new work or would he kind of just leave you to sort of find the works around in the landscape? I never remember him showing us anything. It was just part of what was there and what he did. And it was just what we live with. 
And and is it right that he sort of also made works in your home, Candida? So so I mean, there's a wonderful photograph in one of the rooms here of, of a floor in your home with drawings everywhere, all over the floor. Yes, sometimes at night, after we were asleep, he would draw and draw and draw. And sometimes in the morning, we'd come out and there would be drawings all over the floor that he had done the night before and left to dry. It was like Christmas. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, one of the things that really comes through from reading about him and also just... Um, just you know, sort of seeing the work in this show is that he was his his production was relentless. It was an extraordinary uh, amount of work that he was producing. He seemed sort of completely compelled to create work all the time. Rebecca, I guess um, compelled sort of seems like uh, I, I I just think it was more like breathing than being compelled. Um, he also, I mean, he did things like when we had scratches on our legs, he would put. You know, you know, bright red mercurochrome, and then add a picture on. Or uh, if he's writing something, he adds a picture on. Um, it, it was just a constant flow. And, and uh, can you draw a picture of what it was like? Because obviously the workshop was where the welding was happening and all that kind of stuff. Were you allowed anywhere near that? We were... Well, yes, we could come there, but we had to. We could not look at the welding. We we just I can't even remember being told that, right? We just right. we just we knew, knew we that. couldn't look at it, and we had to wait for all the noise to stop, or else like, yeah, and then we could yell really loud, and then we would get attention. But we didn't like barge right in. No, but I remember there is a pond where we used to go fishing, and when we caught a fish, we couldn't get it off the hook, so we'd have to go get my father to come get it off the hook and we'd stand by the doorway until he noticed and would come and take the fish off the hook for us and then go back to his welding. And is it right that Bolton Landing remains your home today, Candida? Yes, it is. It's our home and we love it. We have a few sculptures in the fields, but many of those sculptures are actually here in Yorkshire right now instead of our fields. So we're happy to see them here. One of the things that's, I think, really important about this exhibition is that your father had a, a real connection to Europe and to Britain, not just in the sort of artistic influences, but certainly in, 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 in his artistic influences, but then in, in his artistic influence. There were a number of great British sculptors who found in your father's work a real liberation. Is that something that's important to you, is it in terms of seeing these works here and, and knowing that, that, that this, these, his work has had an effect here? Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I mean, English sculpture is, English is a, England is a sculpture land. It's, you know, the, the um, early uh, megaliths and um, the, then all the sculptors that have, have great sculptors that are English. It's, it's really a place for sculpture. We're standing in view of one of the Cubai sculptures here, uh, and it's actually work that's in the Tate collection. I'm enormously familiar with this work. I've seen it numerous times in the galleries, but it's actually in the open air here, and it's utterly transformed. Um, <laughs> this is what your father wanted, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's the point with the stainless steel, is the reflectivity. Um, it, 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 he talked about seeing the sun come up and seeing, and being reflected and the sun... Uh, the sunsets and the sky and the ch- most of all the changing light. So to have it indoors is just, um, you know, it's like putting an animal in a cage. It's like having a beautiful lamp and then suddenly you plug it in and the light comes on. That's what it's like having the Cubai outdoors. 
he worked in such an enormous range of materials, didn't he? I mean, in terms of um, the patinas of the of the works, and also the way that he painted on them. Um, was there a sort of um, did he have a sort of programmatic response to it? So would he work for months at a time with certain kinds of, uh, of finishes, and then and then move on and move on, or would he work between all these different types? I think um, it, it was very much uh, any time a, a sort of a pattern or program was established, he would just it would go you know he'd he'd go away from it, he'd do the opposite or something different. I think he just mixed it up all the time. Um, and um, in in turn, also in just in terms of materials, and but and he was a real student of materials, and he really uh, he got a lot from materials and was very attentive to them. Um, it, it was very much part of his process. And and uh, he never really gave up on. I mean, obviously, he studied originally painting. And he never really gave that up, did he? I mean, he's renowned as a sculptor, but it's abundantly clear when you walk through this exhibition that he remains very much a painter. He painted all the time. He, painted, he drew all the time. It was part of his mentation, part of his thinking, physicalized thinking. And painting was important. He wanted to fuse the artworks, painting and sculpture, so that the works moved in between the two disciplines. And as well as being your home, Candida, Bolton Landing remains an active place today. Is that right? Yes. There's, uh, in fact, there's a show of landscapes made in Bolton Landing over 250 years, and there's some of David's work there. So there's some of my work there, Dorothy Daner, and very early artists, landscape artists, and uh, Weber Furlong, many other people, and. Um, uh, it's it's a great show at the Bolton Historical Museum in Bolton Landing. I'd like to ask finally about this wonderful element, which is that both of your names appear in the titles of these sculptures a great deal. We have, for instance, we have Candida standing on a hill very near where we're standing now, and it, you know, in this glorious sunlight today. Uh, can you tell me something about that? The way he names sculptures after you both. I think he told us that he was an older father when we were born, and that was a way he could say hello to us when we were in museums. He would write our names, Hi Candida, Hi Rebecca, or name a piece after us, or simply title a piece and then write our names on it as a way of saying hello always. Was that, was that because he, he was, you know, he, there was this sort of extraordinary com, uh, commitment to making work and therefore he was spending sort of so much time with his work that in a way that the work was a means of relating to you when he was extremely busy in this way? I don't know if it was that thought out, uh, but I mean, our parents were separated, so we were very often far away, and I think that played a part in it too. But I, I completely agree with Candida; it's, that's exactly what it was. Sometimes people think it's titles, but it's not. It's more, it's hellos. <laughs> well, thank you so much, both of you, for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. Yorkshire Sculpture International continues until the 29th of September and the David Smith exhibition is at Yorkshire Sculpture Park until the 5th of January 2020. And an exhibition dedicated to a special project, Frequencies, by the artist Oscar Murillo, who was on the podcast two weeks ago, opens at the Sculpture Park on the 13th of July, alongside another special project by the artist Ruth Ewan. We'll be back and talking about artist influences after this. 
The influential English ascete Thomas Hope was a remarkable man. An inveterate traveller and collector, each room in his London townhouse was lavishly decorated in the style of the countries that he'd visited and filled with the treasures he'd acquired. Fast family wealth enabled him to indulge his passions to the full and it was on his grand tour in 1795 that he purchased the two marble hounds from 2nd century AD which will be offered at Bonham's Antiquities Sale in July. As Bonham's head of antiquities, Francesca Hicken puts it, Thomas Hope put together one of the finest collection of ancient Roman sculpture ever formed in Britain and these magnificent hounds among his very first purchases have pride of place in the statute gallery in his London home. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the art newspaper's Los Angeles-based correspondent, Jory Finkel, has a new book out looking at artists' influences. Called It Speaks to Me, it features 50 artists talking about works that inspired them in museums around the world. Jory is on the line from LA now. Jory, tell me how this project began. Ah, It actually grew out of a column that I used to do at the LA Times. I was a staff reporter there for a couple years. Um, and I had this idea. Um, I was covering a lot of hard news at the time, breaking news on MOCA, LACMA. I had this idea that what we really wanted was to hear more from the artists directly. I wanted to get the artists' own voices into the pages of the newspaper. And I'd had this idea really for a long time um, of asking artists to pick works of art from their local museums. Um, really acting as tour guides of a sort, pointing out works that we might otherwise not notice. How often was the column? We ran the column once a month. So I think in all, there were probably about 30 columns I did with LA artists. So once you had 30 columns in the bag, was that the moment where you thought this was beginning to look like a book? No, I actually had the book in mind from very early on. I just liked the idea of of gathering more and more of these and going farther afield so that it wouldn't just be a book about L.A. artists on L.A. artworks. So uh, you started contacting artists in the rest of the world, but the key factor is that you're talking to artists about works that were in museums close to where they grew up or where they lived. Yeah, I use the word hometown and then I let them figure that out. You know, whatever they want to choose as their hometown, where they're living now, where they have a studio now, where they where they feel most connected now. Um, But the main idea was that I didn't want all of the works to come from MoMA, for example, um, and that I wanted um, these to be works that they actually live with, in a sense, they return to. Uh, they feel connected to, and they're sharing something with us that we we might not already know about, whether it's in San Francisco or Seoul or Lisbon or Johannesburg. And that's the thing, isn't it? You get an access into these artists' lives as well as perhaps their sort of grasp of art history, as it were. Right. Yeah. Some of them really turn out to be autobiographical and to um, tell you more about the artist. Um uh, than they may even realize. In some cases, there's a really direct connection between the artwork that they choose and the kind of art they make. I mean, we look at, look at Jillian Waring chose a Rembrandt self-portrait. And what is Jillian Waring known for? Of course, her self-portraits. Yes, that's right. But but then on, but then you, you're also sort of flummoxed in a way by looking at some of the others. I mean, I was struck by the fact that, for instance, Cornelia Parker, a sort of contemporary of Gillian Waring, chose a work by a completely unexpected artist in the sense that she chose Paolo Lucello. And, and you would never necessarily make the connection between Cornelia and Lucello. No, but it is a war painting. And she talks about destruction. And you do, you know, when you think about Cornelia's work, 
um, and how much of it, it relies on a processes of destruction. There is some there is some connection, maybe not so direct. Indeed. So tell us about some of the other examples and some of those that particularly surprised you, perhaps. Yeah, there were surprises every step of the way. I think one of the bigger surprises was my conversation with Ai Weiwei, um, because we feel like we already know everything there is to know about him. He's such a public figure, um, an exhibitionist in some ways. But uh, what I discovered in his choice of work, he chose a Chinese jade from the Shang Dynasty from the tomb of Fu Hao, and it used to be, it, it is owned by the Beijing National Museum. Um, and what you discover in his interview is that he's a major collector of Chinese jade himself, and that his fascination with jade, his devotion to jade, began during the Cultural Revolution at a time when jade was forbidden um, because of its association with royal dynasties, traditional culture. It's funny, isn't it? Because we think of, when you think of Ai Weiwei and traditional Chinese art, you think about him smashing vases, don't you? So in a sense, the idea that he's a collector is sort of, is counterintuitive in terms of our perception of him. Right, right. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't use his platform to advertise it, that that's not, that's really not what he's about. You know, he is about trying to create social change or bring attention, bringing attention to these social issues. So the fact that he has a personal um, a very passionate collection is was was a real revelation to me. I think one of the things that comes through about the book is this idea that artists never necessarily interpret historical works in the way that an art historian will. And so there are plenty of books about historic art where there are sort of standard methodologies in terms of the way that they're interpreted or the way that the form is described. But so often in this book, there are just unexpected reasons for these works having appeal to the artists. I, I think that's really true. And I think you see that most clearly in the really famous works, like Nick Cave from Chicago chose Jasper John's Target to discuss. Um, and he reads it as a painting loaded with not just sexual politics, but also racial politics in a way. He looks at the colors and he sees the color red as the color of blood. Um, and he's coming out of, you know, years of gun violence in Chicago, and he's working on projects related to gun violence in Chicago. And he begins to see um, a bloody target, which I don't know that that many art historians did. I also found Mark Bradford's reading of Rothko very interesting in, in, in a similar light, in the sense that um, it's not necessarily the fact that he's seeing this in the museum. It's, it's a Rothko that, that his mother has put in a frame and put on his bedroom wall and he and he and he sees it time and again and it sort of on the one hand it inspires him but then his relationship with, with it changes over time doesn't it that's right and it's yeah it's a poster hanging on his bedroom wall in Santa Monica when he's a teenager and he said it's kind of what gave him permission gave him the idea that he could make surfaces too and then he becomes more critical of it over time looking at Rothko's history looking at Rothko's milieu wondering where are the women in that milieu, where are black people? Would there have been room for a queer black artist like Mark? Um, one of the things that I think is interesting overall is that, um, and, and this was maybe not so much a surprise, but it really came home to me in making this book. The younger artists in the book, and I would say artists in their 30s and 40s, 20s, 30s and 40s, tended to have a more critical relationship to the works that they chose. So they loved them 
but they hated them or had problems with them or felt somehow felt disenchanted with them. Some of the older artists in the book had a less complicated relationship. They just chose things they simply loved. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, does that speak to the wider culture or does it speak to a more intellectual response that um, artists have to art today there's been a lot of talk about the sort of mfaification of the art world you know lots of these artists are writing dissertations in a way that perhaps artists from earlier periods may not have and therefore have a sort of a very um, art historical or critical theory background as well as being practicing artists i think you're absolutely right i i do think that the way artists are trained today and the graduate programs, the MFA programs they go to that prize this kind of criticality and critical thinking um, does change the way they interact with art. So can you give some of the examples of some of the perhaps more established or older artists and, and their sort of direct reverence for, for works of art? Bill Viola chose a painting at the Getty by Derek Bouts of the Annunciation and basically describes it as the most powerful painting in the world, or in some sense, um, of a woman, and this is the Virgin Mary, but of a woman at the moment she knows she's pregnant. Um, he is moved by this painting, uncomplicated, you know, in love with this painting in an uncomplicated way, I think. And Judy Chicago chose a painting by Agnes Pelton, it, through which she sees how women artists were able to achieve things in abstraction and become pioneers of abstraction. I, I think she has a very intellectual response. So I'm not saying it's an unintelligent or unintellectual response, but it's not complicated by some critique of the artist's intentions. Were there any sort of eureka moments for you that really enlightened the connection between artists and art in a way that you hadn't expected? There were some really interesting moments. I mean, one of the things that was so much fun in putting together this book was to see the conversations that start, you know, I thought of this book as conversations I was having with artists and then, or they were having with the paintings. But in the end, the artists seem to be talking to each other because there's some key themes or topics that emerge. Um, and one of the most interesting things that happened was Gabriel Orozco's interview was he chose the most important most famous work of Aztec sculpture ever, the Sunstone. It's that big, big disc at the uh, National Anthropology Museum in Mexico City um, that represents somehow scientific achievements of the Aztecs, whether it's a, it worked as a calendar or some kind of astronomical guide, we don't exactly know. Well, what's really interesting is Pia Camille is my only other artist from Mexico City, and independently, coincidentally, she chooses an Aztec sculpture from the same museum, excavated in the 18th century around the same time. But she chooses a sculpture of the earth goddess, Coatlicue, which she says was essentially reburied after it was excavated because it was so fierce and powerful in its femininity, um, that it represented some kind of female power that we couldn't make sense of, couldn't understand, um, couldn't handle. And uh, and so those two columns, I mean, it, things like that were really, really surprising along the way. And I think really interesting to see artists almost in direct conversation with each other. 
One of the things that strikes me is that is is the nature of influence is is deeply complicated, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we we talk about influence as being quite a linear process, but it's not like that, is it? I and mean, this book really confirms that. Oh yeah, and, and and that it's not all about Picasso and Duchamp, right? Like, isn't that isn't that what we learn in art history that the twentieth century belongs to Picasso and Duchamp, and you find yourself in one lineage or the other? And we'd probably say in the 21st century that it belongs to Duchamp. Um, Well, Duchamp doesn't show up in this book and Picasso doesn't show up in this book. And instead, you get some painters and artists who are much lesser known. Indeed. And and, and, and I I wonder, has, you know, obviously you started this process writing a column, you know, and these works were in your local museums. Have you revisited them since and seen them in a different light through these conversations? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, um, the Derek Bouts at the Getty, the Annunciation painting is something I never really paid attention to before Bill Viola chose it. And so that's something I look at in a completely new light now. And yeah, I actually hope to spend more time uh, visiting more of these artworks in person. I haven't seen them all in person myself yet. That's a that's a bucket list thing. So thank you, Joey, for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Ben, for having me on. It Speaks to Me is published by Delmonico Prestel and is priced $29.95 or £19.99. You can read William Kentridge's choice of work in the current print edition of The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. Meanwhile, please subscribe to our daily newsletter. For all the latest news, go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and if you're enjoying it, do give us a rating or review. It helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio, and The Art Newspaper is on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to Claire, Canada and Rebecca, and to Joey, and thank you for listening. Next week, we'll be discussing a newly restored and vastly altered Vermeer painting in Dresden and talking to Helen Kamuk about her exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery in London. See you then. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.